0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our text for this morning, which is Revelation chapter 8. The entire chapter Revelation chapter 8, if you want to use one of the Black Pew Bibles, you usually can find those underneath the chair in front of you, uh, around somewhere, and you'll find that in the New Testament, of course, toward the very end on page 193, page 193, Revelation chapter 8. Preaching is often more, but it is never less than an exercise in humility and hypocrisy. I feel that every Sunday. It is always an exercise in humility and hypocrisy because there's a sense in which we all feel that. Pastors, members of churches, when we're working together, discipling one another, preaching God's word, counseling each other, instructing one another, as we're doing that preaching or that instructing or that encouraging, the truth always comes back to us as something that we need We see in ourselves this incredible need for change. And so in that, there's always this kind of humility. I don't feel like I ever stand up behind this pulpit or any of our other pastors, I don't think feel this way, as though we have figured it out and we're here to set everybody straight. But in fact, what I find more often, which is what I hope you find more often, is that the time that we spend together or individually in the word of God is to help you get straightened out that you see the way the Word of God impacts you and your heart, and I see that today in particular, as this text reminds us of some things coming in the future and our role in them, especially as it comes to the role of prayer and waiting on God. Some of us, if not maybe most of us, as we have heard preaching over the years that we've been Christians, sometimes we sit and listen to a pastor or preacher preach God's word, and we think that he has been reading our mail. We think that maybe he is speaking directly to us. And I want to assure you that that does not happen very often. It certainly does not happen um, individually, as though the pastor would know something about you and preach directly at you as an individual person. Of course, it does happen generally. Pastors think about their churches as families and families uh, walk in trends together down certain streets and we see ways that our church needs to change and grow and so often we are preaching those things into the life of our congregation. Sometimes preaching is individual and it is preached at perhaps a particular person but in my experience that's almost only when we know that there's someone here who needs Christ There may be someone who who we have been working with and walking with and we want them to hear the gospel more clearly. And sometimes you have noticed that. You have noticed when the sermon turns especially evangelistic. But more than anything, I want to assure you of this. When I preach, when I prepare to preach, I'm mostly thinking about me. Because I read in the text all of these things that I need, and I just make the assumption that you're, you've got to be like me, ordinary, everyday Christians, in need of God's truth to help you in your daily life. And that's what I find when we come to this text this morning, and that's why it humbles me to, to preach from it like every text, and it also gives me reason to ask God to, to drive out of my heart the kind of hypocrisy. You'll also notice that when we preach, we often choose to use the plural pronoun we, we. We very seldom say you, because we are a family and we need these truths together. And so I pray that God will use this text this morning to help all of us in a foundational, fundamental way, as this text reminds us of the place of prayer, our prayer lives, and in particular, looking forward to what God has planned in the world and our waiting upon Him. And so there are three truths that we want to see in this chapter 8 of Revelation. And the first is that we see in this coming time that's unfolding in God's redemptive plan these later days... And there's this period of tribulation in the world and God is is bringing the world to rights and shaking the entire world. He is intensifying the patterns of of death and suffering and difficulty that we see in our world right now and bringing it to to a head for his glory and for the good of the world and in particular for the good of his people. And that's why here we see first in the first four verses that in this coming time, When all of these other things are going on and the scrolls are being opened and the the four horsemen are leaping off the page into the world to do the, the mission of God, the will of God in the world, that there is a place for us and that place, at least in part, is the place of prayer. We see here in verses 1 through 4 of Revelation chapter 8 that at this time the prayers of the saints go up. Listen to what it says, starting in verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. This is an interesting verse because almost all of the commentators and Bible scholars who deal with texts like this all pretty much agree that actually the editors of our Bibles may have the chapter break a little off and that verse 1 of chapter 8 actually fits more with the preceding chapter because here comes this, this moment of silence for about a half an hour and there is this waiting for what's going to happen next. Chapter 8 begins with this silence, and the silence is fitting if you've been tracking along through our preaching series in the book of Revelation. If you haven't or you're new here, I would just encourage you to continue coming with us. We are, we're on a good path together as a church, and we're trying to exalt Christ and know Him and increase our joy in Him so that we can be useful to Him in the world, and that you might go back and start reading through the first eight chapters of Revelation and join us again next week as we continue forward. But it is fitting, if you've been keeping up, to see that the silence here, as it is in many places in Scripture, symbolizes judgment. It is drawing attention to this serious moment in human history when there is real and serious judgment in the world. Here we find that seven angels who stand before God are given seven trumpets, It seems here that when we think about these angels, there's a little bit of debate upon who they are or what they are, but it seems clearest to me, I think, that these seven angels are not necessarily particular individual seven angels with names and roles, but rather seven angels that symbolize the mass of angelic beings who are ever before the throne worshiping and doing God's will. But this is when, in verse 3, something really astounding happens. In the midst of perhaps this half an hour of silence, we read about another angel. Listen to this in verse 3. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. Now this is a place, when something like this happens, that I want to ask that question, though I may not get a solid answer because there are many things in the book of Revelation that are just unclear. Remember, this is a vision given to to John of things coming. And while we see it, or I see it, as future uh, and as literal as possible, the things that are coming, there are still pictures and symbols here of what's going on. It can be difficult to sort that out, but I want to ask the question, who is this angel? Now, we don't know, But what we do know is what this text tells us, that this angel has an enormous privilege. He has what the Bible calls much incense, and he takes this incense. You know what incense is? It is something that that burns and smokes with a certain scent to it, and it rises up into the sky or into your living room or bedroom, wherever you're burning incense, if you do that. I don't know how many people do that today, but he has much incense burning in this golden censer. And this incense is added to the prayers of the saints. Throughout scripture, often incense that is burning and rising into the sky is is seen as rising to the nostrils of God, that he would smell it, and perhaps that he would be delighted by it. That's why it's often in reference to the prayers of his people. So put this picture together. There is another angel who seems to stand out against or beyond the seven that we have seen symbolizing all of the angels of heaven, and he has much incense and a golden censer burning, symbolizing often prayer, and those prayers are added to the prayers of the saints. Could it be that we are seeing here, if not the Lord Jesus himself, an angel that is representing him and his good work on our behalf, to take the incense of his prayers, which rise up into the nostrils of God the Father and delight his soul like no other, and adds them to ours. In this incredible moment of silence and prayer, of all the, of the pictures that the Bible paints for us, this picture of incense has always made good sense to me. I feel that in my Christian life, I have been slow, to grow and slow to catch on and slow to get many of the things the bible says this is one i have been quick to get because this image of of incense that is burning and rising with a with a pleasant aroma perhaps reminds me of my own life and many of the delights what would life be like without smells some of us have experienced that recently In a strange COVID twist of fate, you've lost your sense of smell or taste, and so you have a sense of what that's like. I didn't experience that, and so I wonder what would it be like if life had no smells? I delight so much in the smells of my life, cookies and smoked meats, which we enjoyed so much of over the last couple of days in the men's summit, thanks to Pastor Kevin and Court. Brownies, smoked meats, chili, smoked meats, (laughs) tacos, candles, babies, dryer sheets. It could go on and on and on. You're catching why this image is so enlivening to us. Because there is something about this experience that we know. Rising smells, delighting nostrils. This picture is painted for us in the picture of incense, but it's prayer. It's prayer that is rising into the nostrils of God. And when we read that, when I read that, I feel an overwhelming sense of hypocrisy Because when I read that, I think, what more could I do with my life than this? To send up prayers, heartfelt prayers, to pour out my heart to the God who has redeemed me, that they would rise to his nostrils and delight him. And yet so often, here I am, in weakness in prayer, so often prayerless. This is a part of the Christian life that I so feel weak and needy, Do you? I'm up and down. I'm hot and cold. I'm consistent and inconsistent. It's again another just aspect of, the, of the, the challenging Christian life as people who are fallen. We have remaining sin. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil pulling at us, and it makes this life so challenging. And then we see the ways that we are falling behind. We were given a really helpful I thought it was a really helpful picture, as the men on Friday night spent time watching a documentary about the Puritans, that we would try to get a glimpse of what characterized much, not all, but much of their lives, which is living for the glory of God in every moment. And a part of the documentary started to talk about our own Christian maturity and sanctification. And John Piper, one of the pastors that was speaking in the video, being interviewed and talking about the Puritans, he gave this incredible image, and it was the image of an octopus as a way of thinking about our own spiritual formation as Christians. And it was helpful for me to think about this because what he said was, it is as if in our hearts our sanctification is is an eight-legged octopus, And when you look at some of those tentacles, they are well-formed and strong and healthy, and yet you look at something else in a person's life and it's shriveled and weak and falling behind. It needs to be strengthened. It needs to be nourished. This is certainly one of those for me. One of the tentacles of my spiritual life that seems to always need extra work and extra help is my prayer life. If you're with me on that, then you need the Word of God, like I do, to help us. And I think that here we have in this text a helpful, ultimate truth to motivate and to empower our praying. And that is that God ordains not only the ends of his plans, which we're reading about here in the book of Revelation, but also the means. In this text, we see again this connection between God's ends and and God's means. The reason I think that connection is so helpful for us this morning is because it helps to answer the classic question for Christians like us. Christians like us, we believe that God is ultimately sovereign. We believe he has no lack for wisdom or power or willingness to accomplish his purposes in the world, that he never wrings his hands in heaven, worried about what's happening down on earth, but he's always in control. In fact, he's been in control from eternity past, in which in some mystery of of his divine nature has established a plan for the world that cannot at any moment, for any reason, be thwarted. None of his plans will be thwarted. He always gets his way and all of his plans are set. So we ask the question then, so why should I pray? What good does it do for me to pray if God has already decided how things will go? And he has. The answer is found here, not only in God's ordination of those plans, but his ordination of how those plans will happen. And one of the most amazing ways in which he has ordained the accomplishment of his plans is doing it through the prayers of his people. He works through divinely ordained means and prayer has to be at the top of the list. This is an amazing reality for people like you and me. That God, who is supreme over all, none of whose plans will be thwarted, has invited us, mere mortals fallen at that, yet redeemed by his grace, he has invited us into his divine execution of his plans. This is a truth that can really help us because it means that our praying is all the more important And all the more confident. When we pray, we can pray with real assurance that what we are praying for can and will accomplish much according to the will of God. Therefore, our desire is to pray according to His will, to pray effectual prayers, effective prayers, heartfelt prayers, prayers that are directed to His glory and to our good and to His purposes in the world his making all things right again, and us joining him forevermore in his coming kingdom, that that would motivate our praying. Put that into our prayers, and let's see what happens. That kind of heart, think about your life, think about your prayer life, I think about mine. Is that how your prayer life is characterized? Is it flooded with the fuel of this kind of praying? this kind of assurance and trust in God, this kind of submission to the God who is supreme over all, this is the kind of praying that we want to be doing. Not only do we have that truth of the connection between the means and the ends and that fuels our praying, but we have something that perhaps is even greater seen in this text. And that is that whoever this angel is, if it is the Lord himself, or an angel that is representing him or symbolizing him and showing off his role in our lives, even the role of the Holy Spirit as the Bible talks about it, we are given this incredible hope and encouragement to pray because we do not pray alone. That in fact, his prayers, his interceding, as the Bible tells us, is added to our prayers. It's sort of like that story, which I think is just a story. It would be amazing if it actually happened. There's a story of a of a, a mother that took her young son who was learning to play the piano to a concert hall in a great concert where a legendary pianist was there to put on a performance and, and somehow she loses track of the little boy and he has he has shuffled up onto the stage where the, the piano is sitting waiting for this legend to come out and to to tickle the keys to everyone's delight, and the little boy walks up, and all of a sudden, everybody's brought into a hush as they hear this really, really rough version of chopsticks banging out on the piano. And of course, the mother is mortified seeing this happen and realizing that it's her son up there making a mess of the whole situation, all of the pomp and all of the circumstance, and she just can't Fast enough, get up there to pull his little rear end off of that bench and back into his seat, but before she can, she can. Out comes the legend. And he comes up without the boy's notice, and walks up right behind him, and he starts accompanying his chopsticks. And he starts adding all of his notes and all of the majesty of his music to this rough banging on the keys, and turns it into a delightful performance pre-performance. Now, I don't think that that story is true, except when it comes to our prayers, because that is exactly what happens when you and I pray. We never pray alone. Our little feeble prayers, which you know they're feeble, you know they are. You know that your prayers are not creative. You know that your prayers are not very powerful in and of themselves. You know that they're not eloquent. And yet God invites us to come to him the most eloquent king of all, to bring our pounding chopsticks to the piano. Why? Because he is standing behind you, often without our notice. And he is adding, just as the angel adds these prayers, his prayers to the prayers of the saints, and it rises up to God. It is an incredible picture of our prayer. Have you ever read in James 5.17 that the prayer of a righteous person, when it's brought about, accomplishes much? Why do you think that is? It's because there is a capital R righteous person standing behind the little r righteous person, adding his prayers to ours. Not only that, we have the Holy Spirit who lives within us and we're taught in the scriptures, often prays for us in words that that we cannot understand when we don't know what words to pray. And so here we have an incredible, beautiful picture of the coming moment of this silence in the midst of judgment upon the world, the prayers of the saints and the prayers of their king rising into the nostrils of God. For these reasons and many more, we want to take prayer seriously. Here are two encouragements. And for people like us, we need simple encouragements to get us going. Nothing fancy, nothing elaborate. It's simply this. Make time to pray. Maybe I should put that differently. My teachers always told me to put that differently. They reminded me, you can't make time. Take time. Take time to pray. Make that a part of your life. I need that to be a part of my life. Some list, some fumbling, clumsy way to bring together the requests of our church, of our friends, of our family, of our own souls, and then bring them to God. The second encouragement I would give you is this. Be ready to pray when it comes to your mind. If you're in the car and someone pops into your head, pray for that person. If you're laying awake at night, scrolling through Instagram, and some post brings to mind someone or something, pray for that person. Think of that. If our lives were filled, moment after moment after moment after moment, of us sending our incense with the king behind us, sending his, the ways that we would see God's will accomplished in the world. So the prayers of the saints go up, but in this part of John's revelation, we find what their prayers are about, because the prayer of a righteous person with the righteous person at the back accomplishes much, and as they're praying, we get to see what comes next. Continuing from verse 3, another angel came and stood at the the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne and the smoke of the incense ascended from the angel's hand and the prayers of the saints before God. Verse 5, then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and hurled it to the earth. And there were peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. What have their prayers accomplished? What ends at this point in redemptive history have they brought about? They've brought about this period of judgment on the world. There's another reason here why I think that perhaps this angel could be the Lord himself and if it isn't, I'm okay with that. I would rather in the end have been someone that was looking to the Word of God, seeking Christ and finding him every turn, even where he's not. But look at this angel who takes the censor, not only fills the prayers of the people with additional prayers, but then but then casts or hurls fire on the earth. There are peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning. And an earthquake. The prayers rising to the Lord result in what we see next is a great deluge of judgment and wrath answering the prayers of the saints. They are praying for something that is so important in the world, and that is justice. For things to put right, to be put right, they are praying because they know the kind of world that they live in, the kind of world that they have come through, the kind of tribulation that they have endured, and God has rescued them. There is a storm of wrath coming down. But it serves merely as a warning of greater wrath to come. Let's look quickly at what each of these moments or expressions of this judgment in the world look like and just notice a couple of things about them to help us get the context of of what this is all about in verse six. It says the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded and there was hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up. You may have noticed earlier with the four horsemen that when they went out to do their, the Lord's bidding that, that a quarter of the earth was impacted. You see the things are intensifying. They're getting worse as they go. Now a third of the earth is burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was hurled into the sea. These are terrifying, terrifying images. A third of the sea became blood. Many of these, you notice, are reminiscent of the the plagues of Egypt in the past. A third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The star is named Wormwood, that's like bitterness, and a third of the waters became bitter, and many people died from the waters because they were made bitter with Wormwood. Verse 12, the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. This is an amazing picture of something that we believe, according to the word of God, is coming upon the world in the future. Though we rest knowing that our king, with his prayers and his his caring for us, is going to see us through, nevertheless, we are shaken by the reality of what will happen in this world that we have known Here are some of the things that I think we can take away from seeing just this brief picture this morning, some of the lessons we might capture from these verses. First, let's always remember that God will defend and avenge his people in time. God knows where we are, he knows what we go through in this world, and he takes it quite seriously. You've read in Romans 12, do not avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But nevertheless, here is what is beautiful in these terrifying images. God's judgment seems to leave room for repentance. You see that his wrath in these verses of the chapters that came before is kind of progressive. And therefore, as we see this and, and we know ourselves to be those who are saved only by grace alone, it's not because of anything that we have done. We feel hypocrisy, not self-righteousness. We want people to be saved. We see these things falling upon the world and so it's our hope that perhaps they will be. But something is true, that God's judgment is faithful. God's judgment will be complete and comprehensive Look again at verses 7, 8, and 9, 10, and 11, 12. Look at the comprehensive nature of his response to the world in judgment. Judgment over the earth, verse 7, over the seas, 8, and 9, over the rivers and springs, 10, and 11, over the starry heavens, 12. It's an all-encompassing picture of what will come upon the world. Therefore, we need not doubt God's seriousness about sin and about righteousness, He's left us no doubt about it. What will happen in the future? God will condescend upon the world in a way like never before. You hear it in that word, hurled down, that He is hurling down judgments upon the world, coming down from His throne, from His presence. It's frightening. But we also know that this is not the only time that God has condescended on the world. And this is what gives us hope because this is where we find a reflection of the gospel, a reminder of the gospel that when he condescends on the world in wrath, those who know him, and I mean those who really know him, I'm not talking about people who say they know him. I'm not talking about people who just think they know him. I'm talking about people who actually know him and it's evident in their lives, it's evident in their hearts and in their words and their desires, their focus. They have, as we heard this weekend, a God-entranced life and worldview. They know that God has already condescended upon them because that's what Jesus Christ does in the gospel. He has come down into our world, this sinful, fallen world. He has become one of us. He has taken our sin on himself and died on the cross in our place and miraculously, powerfully risen from the dead and and shown himself to hundreds of people before ascending into heaven, awaiting this time. And all the while, he is by his Spirit drawing people to himself. Maybe he's drawing you. Maybe he's drawing you ahead of these days that you might be cared for and carried through them by faith in Jesus Christ. Make your calling and election sure, my friends, because you know that this day is coming. You cannot say there's time. You cannot say, oh, that's off in the future. You cannot say, oh, that's cloudy. I don't really understand the book of Revelation. Come to Christ now, because now is the time. We're reminded yet again here of the way that he has condescended upon us to save us. And those who know him can then trust him on the basis of texts like these that he will make all things right. I think you and I often feel a concern or a worry that things will not be made right. We fret over things going on in the world and we think that we need to sort them out. We need to make them right. We need to hand out the judgment. We need to get the vengeance, but we don't. God is going to do that in a way like no other. Finally, we see this last truth that helps us in these moments and in the moments to come. We pray that the world would come to see this more clearly and it is that the world The whole world waits on God. Look just at verse 13, our last verse for this morning. John says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, that's a strange picture, Woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth. Because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels, notice we've only seen four, there are three more, and they are about to sound And here there is an eagle flying in this loud voice, woe. The woe is not W-H-O-A as in woe. It's a declaration of condemnation and judgment coming. Woe. Woe to you. We read that other places, in particular in the Gospels. Woe to you. This is what the eagle is saying. But notice that this eagle says it not twice, but three times. Throughout Scripture, there's always this way of emphasizing something by repeating it twice. Jesus did this all the time. Remember, he said, verily, verily, truly, truly, listen, listen. But here, it's as though another is added, perhaps to get this sense of of ultimate perfection and completeness. And here, it's a completeness of of judgment eventually. Whoa, woe, woe. To those who live on the earth, this could be reminiscent this eagle of god 's rescue of god 's people, certainly we could see that in this. You read in Exodus 1914 about how God saves his people, and they 're saved as on eagles wings, flying away, cared for, protected. But it might be more accurate to see this as though it 's not t- terrifying enough. Sometimes that word eagle that's used is translated actually vulture. And here it could be that it is ultimately this single-minded warning of impending doom. Of course, I think for us, it's both. I think when you see this eagle in this text, you can have both. You can see that that God is serious about his world and we are looking forward to the day that he makes all things right and therefore we're filling our censer and sending up our prayers to him, burning into his nostrils with prayers for him to make the world right, but nevertheless also giving thanks that we have been rescued on eagle's wings, the wings of Christ himself, and praying that others would come to know him Because the first four trumpets will influence mankind indirectly, as you've seen, falling down to the earth all around them. We'll have to wait to see what happens next. But we are given hope in this text. I think the world is given hope. Because it seems as though these things that are happening at this point in God's unfolding plan serve as a kind of warning shot. You know, in the 18th century, particularly in nautical terms, there was something known as a warning shot. It was a shot over the bow of another boat, and this shot was was fired in order to enact some kind of compliance. When that happened, those on the other ship were required, if they were wise, to raise their colors and to reveal their identity or their allegiance, and then they would fire back across. It seems here as things are getting worse and worse, at least we pray they are taken this way by the world, that these are warning shots. that things are getting worse, declare your allegiance now. But no matter who you are in the world, one thing is true. You are waiting on God. There's no escaping that. There's no changing that. No matter how much any of us or Any of the world would like to say, oh, I'm not waiting on God. I'm living my own life. I have all this independence and autonomy and freedom in the world. Not really. It's really simply an illusion because every person is waiting on God. That's what we see last in just these verses here. Woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound Everyone is waiting on God. The question is, what are you waiting on from him? You're either in Christ, waiting upon his ultimate glorious rescue of you, or you are waiting apart from Christ on his ultimate glorious judgment of you. Our prayer is that many people in our communities on our streets, in our workplaces, in our families, like us would have the assurance and the joy of knowing that no matter what befalls the world, we are waiting on him for his rescue because he has shown us grace. That's what I believe we're waiting on, That's what I believe the vast majority of of Christians in churches like ours are waiting on, but the question is how? How are we to be waiting in times like these? We have all of this life to live and responsibilities, and sometimes these things in Revelation get a hold of our attention, but we don't really know what to do with them. They seem so far away. What should I be doing if I'm waiting on God's rescue? Well, I want to take you once again to Romans 12, verses 10 and 12, as we come to a close. And take these simple words from Paul as our encouragement of how we wait on the Lord. How do we wait for his ultimate rescue in these times? Well, we wait in faithfulness to him and to one another. Listen to this. He says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. If you want to be the kind of person that is waiting on God's rescue, the kind of person that hopes in Him and looks forward to His coming again, you're also the kind of person who knows that He is present with you now and He is working in our midst in a unique way. And therefore, we are to devote ourselves to one another in brotherly love as those who have been brought into His family. Notice what He says, give preference to one another in honor that we would seek to outdo one another in a sense in honoring each other in this time. Not lagging behind in diligence, verse 11, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. This is a picture of the local church waiting on his ultimate rescue. It is though we are all congregated in here while, while a war is raging outside. Now, of course, we are part of that that war because we are soldiers for Christ, we're ambassadors. But I can't get apart away from this picture of the church huddled together under her pastors, fervent in spirit, loving one another, walking together, encouraging each other, just as we've read here. And what are we doing? We are waiting. He goes on, he says in verse 12. Rejoice in hope, persevering in tribulation. That's weird. You don't put those things together naturally. These are supernaturally put together that you would find those two phrases back to back. Rejoice in hope, persevere in tribulation. You might as say, well, say rejoice in tribulation, persevere in hope. They're so close together. But that's what Jesus has enabled us to do. And there, of course, we see it next. What does it say? Devoted to prayer. Praying faithfully. Hypocrisy, humility. I need to pray. I need to be devoted to prayer. And then finally, verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. This is the very ordinary work of waiting. Waiting. This is what it looks like for us to wait together for the Lord's ultimate rescue one day. And so we wait and we pray and we love and we serve. And we believe that as we do this, God will use us. God will strengthen us. God will make us ambassadors in the world. The world may see something in that that is life-changing for them. That They would hear the gospel in our words, but also see it in our lives. And so we want to pray this morning that that would happen. If you're with us this morning as a guest or perhaps through the recording of our service, we just want to compel you to come to Christ if you haven't Or if you've come to Christ but you seem to have drifted farther away, come back again. Get close. We need to be close. And we welcome you, if that's you, to become close with us. Come get to know us so we can get to know you and we can walk together and care for each other as imperfectly as we do it. That is our desire. And so now as we prepare our hearts to sing again, let me invite you to stand wherever you are as you're able. And we're going to ask God together in a kind of corporate prayer to help us, help us to wait on him. Our Father, we we do ask you for your grace, the grace of waiting, the grace of seeking you in these times. We have so many issues and pains and difficulties in our lives. We have so many questions and concerns, and yet we need you to assuage them. Comfort us. We are comforted by the truth of your resurrection, that you are alive, you are a living Savior. You are the one who prays on our behalf. You stand over and above us, making our lives make sense, making your music, even in the midst of our sin. You are bringing glory to God in us. And so we pray that that would fill us with joy And it would fill us with with gladness that would lead us to pray and to see ourselves as a part of your plan by sending the prayers of our hearts, of us the saints, up to you. We pray today that you would help us to seek you and to love you and to sing to you now with these truths on our hearts and we carry them with us and that we continue to wait together on you in the ways that you have commanded us and called us.